Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Shouldn't you be at work? And love. Oh, and love, he's got a real chance now. Peter and love. John Walk will take the penalty. Up goes Dion Dublin! Unknown goal from Ruddock! The ball might break here for Kiwabia. Panister and Bruce in the queue again. Bruce scores! Goal leg! Hit leg! Hit leg over the top! It's now! Now, you know him better than anybody probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Holy oh, Hatton! No! Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? Mark Watson, I'm Chris Skull. Joining me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And are you cool, Mike Newell? It's Michael Marden. Hello. Thank you to Luke Freeman for that one. I wouldn't describe Mike Newell as cool. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. How are we? Shall we get straight into the post bag? I, I plead with you that we're not doing Alexi Lalas facts this week. Well, look, I'm quite looking forward haven't. to them. <laughs> <laughs> We will do it again. Oh, there are no. some emails here, but I just thought we can't do two Alexi Lalas features in in two weeks. I, I, I think I think the I think the readers are cr- listeners are crying out for it. I would say the quality is very mixed. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you want last it, week. <laughs> I think we've got to do it. Do you want some Alexi Lalas facts? Yeah, big time. All right, come on then. Let's have some Alexi Lalas facts. These are I've not checked any of these. I'll just present them to you. Have we actually got an Alexi Lalas um, sting yet? I don't think it's ready for a sting or worthy of a sting yet. Do you? Okay, I think well. I think it'd be remit like after last week. I don't think it's earned it. Maybe if it's still going in a few weeks, in the unlikely okay. event. Here's the first fact. You tell me whether or not this is true. In 1994, Alexi started the Rock and Roll Football Academy with another musician footballer, Dean Windass. Dean was an occasional drummer with Alexi's band. The academy was based in Paris suburbs, trying so to discover the So is this a lie as well, presumably? <laughs> well, let me finish. So people are just trying making up lies the... now. They're not even <laughs> real facts. <laughs> trying to discover the talented teenagers who couldn't make it to France's prestigious Clairefontaine Academy. One of their discoveries was 17-year-old Bill, who went on to have a successful career across multiple teams. In summary, Lalas and Windas discover Gallas. What is going on? <laughs> Do you want more? Do you want more? There's loads of this stuff. Is any of it any I'm, good? Uh, Let's do the normal. Let's do the normal no. emails then. <laughs> Let's go to normal emails. <laughs> Let's have some correspondence. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. All right, Michael, you're not going to like this email, but I think it's hit on something. Josh, 
answer this question. The best goals Man United scored in the 90s. Give, give, me, some, give me some examples of the best Beckham goals. Beckham against Wimbledon. Beckham against Wimbledon. Cantona with that chip. Get Cantona against Sunderland, yeah. What about Andy Cole versus Spurs to win the title in 99, yeah? Don't remember that, but I'll, I'll give um, you that. FA Cup semi-final, Ryan Giggs versus Arsenal. Oh, yeah, that's a classic. Yeah, I don't know if you're noticing it there, but there's a bit of a trend developing with these goals. Ryan Giggs hitting it bang over the top of Seaman's head. Cantona lobbing the keeper. Beckham lobbing the keeper. Robin Peake's been on to say, in each case, the keeper wasn't on his line. Surely something that made it easier for these United greats to practice in training due to their having the great but slightly flawed Peter Schmeichel as a teammate and training partner. The theory is, Peter Schmeichel was so easily lobbed that the Manchester United team became super skilled in the art of lobbing. I don't buy this. And therefore... Their great goals in the 90s were all chips and lobs. I mean, it's no, a very fun observation. The, the volume of goals that would have to have been chipped goals for Manchester United in the decade for this to make any sense whatsoever. Is yeah, I don't believe that Ryan Giggs was lobbing uh, David Seaman in 1999. No, he it's... blasted it past him. On <laughs> That's not a lob, yeah. That was the, yeah. He, Seaman was on his line. You can't lob a keeper on his line. Yeah, Um <laughs> I also think to Peter Shilton. Surely there's a <laughs> surely there's a um, situation where if you're training with someone who's easy to lob, that's not good preparation for getting good at lobbing the ball. Yeah, that would be like training to fight Mike Tyson against a four-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although Michael has just compared Peter Schmeichel's goalkeeping to that of a four-year-old boxer. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching a, a clip of the overlap on tour. They were interviewing Stuart Pearce, and I want I want your take on this, Michael. Stuart Pearce said they'd attempted to sign him, Manchester United. Alex Ferguson had attempted to sign him. And Gary Neville's response was that would have ended Gary Neville's Manchester United career because Dennis Irwin would have played right back and Stuart Pearce would have played left back. That's, yeah, I, there's probably some truth to that. Uh, Irwin would have played right back. Pearce and Irwin as fullbacks for United in the early 90s would have been absolutely unplayable. I think there's a world in which Neville probably does come through as a squad player, but... He probably doesn't become first choice right back for United. I would probably say Phil Neville's the one who bites the bullet there because Gary get pushed down the order, but Phil would be pushed oh, even further. Even further down the order, yeah. Then maybe he goes to Everton in 95. Imagine, imagine that world. <laughs> <laughs> if you can. <laughs> that balmy parallel universe. <laughs> But surely Gary Neville would have stepped, just just come into the team slightly later. Because yeah, how possibly. long? How long is Stuart Pearce realistically? I think he's um, playing. I think he's playing. He's not playing in the '99 Champions League final, is he? I think it's unlikely by that point. But you know, Owen did. So what's to say that yeah. Pearce, with the right manager at the right club, couldn't have extended his career? Stuart Pearce is West Ham's Player of the Year. 2001. No, that's such, yes. such, that such a reflection <laughs> West Ham. Teddy Sheringham is our oldest outfield player to ever play in the Premier League, and he's well into his 40, 40th year, I should say. Yeah, but would Stuart Pearce have won the Champions League in 1999 at Manchester United? Presumably he was at Newcastle at that point, was he? So he's still doing a job. Yeah, he's playing. Would he not be playing in the Champions League under no. Bobby Robson? Yeah, maybe. I think the problem with that at United is that as as good as he was Pierce, I think Fergie was fairly ruthless about shipping out 
older players if you look back at yeah. Bruce he would, have been 37, he would have been 37 the year yeah Stupid is a different beast though as I, as I earlier mentioned he did win Hammer of the Year in 2001 <laughs> in his 39th year yeah just, just out of interest who were the previous Hammer of the Year winners in the run up to that uh, off the top of my head it would have been Di Canio I guess uh, and then a lad called Sebastian Schemmel who I actually met recently I think would have been shortly after. Oh, here you go. Do you want the Hammers of the Year from the 90s? Shall we do that as a... Um... Oh, my fucking God. It's so weak. It's so weak. <laughs> Could that be the quiz at the end of the episode? Yeah, that's something to look okay. forward to. Okay. <laughs> not for me, it's not a West Ham fan, it's not. <laughs> Slightly favouring Scar there. Right, remember we spoke a few weeks ago about Steve Sutton's ambitions to be a conductor. I had an email yes. from Mark Hindmarsh who says, I used to be in brass bands around 10 to 15 years ago, and I once had the pleasure of touring Europe and doing numerous concerts with Steve Sutton. Oh, He's an excellent bass trombone player and also oh. dabbles in the sousaphone. That is fascinating. Um, isn't it? He says, I have been to several barbecues at his house. If you go to the downstairs toilet, you will be confronted with pictures of Steve Bruce and Des Walker, amongst others. Why Steve Bruce? A lovely bloke all round, Mark, 40 and three quarters. Oh, wow. That's that's good. It's nice, that, isn't it? Did I say Stuart, Stuart Pierce? I said Stuart Pierce, didn't I? No, you, yeah, you said Steve Bruce and Des Walker. Oh, sorry. I meant Stuart. Got him uh, on the brain. I meant Stuart Pierce. That yeah, would yeah. be a bit weird. Yeah, well, I just thought it might be like an action shot of Sutton punching the ball away as Bruce goes ahead <laughs> or something. Fair enough. It's just so surprising when a footballer's so into high culture, isn't it? I know. We're still rocked from the fact that Graham, Graham Lasso once read the Financial Times on the away, the away bus. I know, that's kind of that's changed everything, didn't it? He paved the way for Steve Sutton. What else have we got, Scott? Andrew Morris has been on. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about Beat the Keeper, a short-lived feature on Soccer AM, um, where you could ring up and press oh, buttons yeah, on your phone yeah. to direct yeah, a penalty yeah. at Helen Chamberlain. Andrew Morris... And mate, I'd be amazed if any listener remembers this. He won the final edition in 1995, oh, wow. 96, age 10 or 11. He said you had to ring up and then use your touch phone to decide where to place the ball in a penalty shootout using the numbers 456789, i.e. top left corner, five top centre, six top right corner. Helen Chamberlain played the part of the keeper and would select, also select an occasion to dive. There'd be two contestants playing for the team he supported. I was Rex and we beat Arsenal, recreating the famous FA Cup upset a few years earlier. Sadly, the prize was a crap Sky Sports t-shirt, which was plain black with a oh. post no. Stamp Sky Sports logo on the crest. My mum forced me to ask Helen Russ and Gary for their autograph, screaming at me while on the phone as if her life depended on it. <laughs> Being the last day of the season, this is a great fact, I assume all the staff went on summer holiday straight after the show as my prize didn't arrive for 12 months. What? And the, sub and the signatures never arrived either, presumably oh. as Russ and Gary were sacked and replaced by Tim Lovejoy. Cheers. And that's Andy. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. All right, well, if you want to get in touch, uh, then this is how. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. If you want even more Quickly Kevin, if you're loving the series so much that you want to hear some more stuff, we have got years of extra episodes. We've been doing two a month for a long time on the fan club. 
They're uh, both Steve Bruce books are almost complete. We're right at the very end of the second book now, reading through every chapter word by word with Ivo Graham. You can get access to these hundreds of hours of extra Quickly Kevin content. Why not treat yourself? Head over to anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. Sign up to the Flan Club and you get all this extra episodes for your enjoyment. Anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. Sign up for the Flan Club. Get all those extra episodes. Right now, oh, I love the episodes we do with uh, small clubs in the 90s. You learn so much, you get... It's the perfect slice of 90s life. And this week, it's Bristol City with the brilliant comedian, Mark Watson. Our guest this week is one of the UK's best comedians, authors, and for anyone who has seen him on Taskmaster songwriters but more importantly he is a fan of a proper football club albeit one that pretends to be in the west country when it isn't bristol city welcome to quickly kevin mark watson i'll be honest i wrote the intro immediate provocative <laughs> words there from the <laughs> yeah putting a marker in straight away tough tackle in the opening minute where the west country begins and ends is one of these conversations that are of so little interest to anyone else <laughs> in the country <laughs> because he- when you travel around, you start to realise that Bristol, Devon, even Cornwall are just the same thing in most people's minds. And Wales. Yes. And many people can't tell a Bristol accent from a further west for a start. Well, as a non-West Country person, Chris, would you consider Bristol to be in the West Country? Yeah. But then I would consider anything west of like Heathrow West Country. So would you consider, what, like Bournemouth to be in the West Country? I mean, Hook Services. Whenever I'm stuck at Hook Services, I think, I'm in the middle of nowhere here. This is the West Country. So like, by the time you get to Bristol, you're deep in territory, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, you expect to be sort of smothered in clotted cream as you're driving yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. Dodging cheese rolling festivals on the way down, yeah. I just don't... If you didn't get West Country TV... That was the name of our TV, West Country. <laughs> Fair enough. Ours was HTV. What did the H stand for? I'm asking myself that now for the first time <laughs> after 43 years. I have to accept that I don't know. Why is it H? What do people in the West Country say is the boundary of the West Country. Somerset. I'm not sure we'd all describe ourselves as West Country. It's a tricky one. We'd say we're in the West, definitely. But I think it's one of those things where you might sing West Country type songs if you were supporting City at Sunderland. But if you travelled to Plymouth, you'd have to sort of hold your hands up a bit. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it sort of is a problem for identity-wise for Bristol that Josh and I talked about this briefly. There is this perception that it should be a hotbed of football, but or at least not just Bristol, Plymouth. The whole that's part of the reason why we're all lumped together as the West. There is just this massive area where there are no good teams apart from Southampton, who are also now shit. The distance from Bristol to a viable Premier League team once Southampton go down is, let alone Plymouth, is mind-boggling. And of course, Cardiff or Swansea being up there is worse. What gates would Bristol City presume you had an infant stadium? What would you be able to get? if you were an established Premier League team? I think you'd easily sell it out. because well, it's... you're Infinite Stadium. Oh, sorry, if, if the stadium was infinite size, I thought you meant the... We'd sell it out. I suppose there's a point at which you run out of people in the world and then you've got to people that can reasonably get to Bristol, especially if it's a midweek game. If it's a lunchtime kickoff and Burnley are the visitors, then it's probably not infinite, but... <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because... Actually, I was thinking about this when I was, I mean, prepping for this is sort of probably doing myself a, a bit of a service, but I did have a brief mooch through my memories of the 90s. And the crowds then used to be pitiful compared with what they are now. Yeah. Like when I was going as a kid, it'd be 
pretty sure seven, eight thousand, ten or twelve for a big game, and the level was lower. But now it's it never dips below about twenty, and of course, in the seventies. Well, I suppose yeah, the best way to tell how we would do gates wise in the Premier League is to look back to the when we were there. But it's the seventies, and in those days there weren't seemingly any rules about how many people were allowed in. Yeah, they did have infinite stadiums there. They essentially did have infinite stadiums. They weren't allowed to, but they did. Yeah, I mean, I think even when I was first taken as a kid, you could get thirty thousand in there, but you shouldn't. <laughs> and soon after that, you couldn't anymore. Mind you, also, it's difficult, isn't it? Because in this scenario where we finally went up, there'd be so much excitement that you'd easily sell 20-odd thousand season tickets. You'd be looking at gates in the 30,000s, I think, and you imagine it would be like that forever. But then, and again, we briefly talked about this, there is this weird thing that kicks in where people get blasé or discontented really quickly yeah. after even two or three years. I'd like to think it'd be like Brighton or something like that, but in reality, it probably would be enormous for a couple of years and then if we became one of those teams that just endlessly bounced between Premier League and Championship people would start to people will always find a way of being sort of dissatisfied as you know oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) and just to tie up something I've googled it at the end of the conversation but in 2014 HTV got absorbed into ITV West Country so I will admit that Bristol is now part of the West Country due to ITV's <laughs> absorption of HTV. Since 2014. But only for the past nine years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for the past nine years. Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily Yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. A couple of questions before we properly get into Bristol City, which was, we always like to start with, have you ever met a 90s footballer? You must have met quite a few 90s footballers, haven't you? Yeah, like you, I've been on things like Fighting Talk. And in fact... Yeah, one of the best things about being a comedian is being adjacent to more 90s footballers than you could have dreamed of in the 90s. Yeah. I've met Wrighty a couple of times. That never stops being exciting. That's exciting. In fact, I did a minor thing for BBC Sport last year, which involved being in the Match the Day 2 studios. And Wright and Shearer were both, well, next door. They were watching the game. I've never witnessed this before. They were watching the game. Oh, so you saw them actually doing the game watching bit. Yes, I walked past a studio where it looked like just a sort of a bunch of guys were sort of slouching watching. Brentford v Arsenal it was. But when I peered in to see what the score was, the guys turned out to be Wright and Shearer, a couple of other people that I immediately left, of course. <laughs> and then 
writers, um, I've met him three times now, I think, and both, or the first two were both work situations, like things like the Football League show and things like this. This third time, I greeted him as if we knew each other, but I'm pretty sure he didn't remember the first two. Yeah. And <laughs> quite understandably, even though he took a picture for my son and all this. And I reckon the fourth time I meet writer, he also won't remember the first three. And again, I don't really blame him. <laughs> Is there anything you could do to... Yeah. You need to start ramping up the memorability of these meetings. Yeah. <laughs> Give him a slap or nick his beret. You might think this was memorable. Actually, probably my most notable dealing with the 90s footballer was, again, Shearer. And it was... Sometimes I can't believe this is a real memory, but about five years ago for Sport Relief, they had a 24-hour-long five-a-side game, a team under Shearer and a team under Robbie Savage in Salford, just where the BBC Sport is there. And I got asked to do it and played. And then people were meant to sort of sub in and out. They had like local school kids and local clubs, but also various comedians and stuff. And I was so keen. And also most people wanted to sub in and out because it was snowing, shitting it down. It was horrible horrible conditions, but I couldn't get past the novelty of being alongside Shearer, obviously. So I played about five or six games straight. Oh, wow. But again, this second time meeting Shearer, I said, oh yeah, we actually played in a marathon five-a-side game together. Um, and he vaguely recalled the event, but he, he hasn't been spending five years thinking, I wonder when I will see the link-up play of Mark Watson again. <laughs> Do you remember the one they did where him and Robbie Savage uh, sat in every seat in Wembley for Sport yeah. Relief? <laughs> That was sort of less of a crowd pleaser, I felt, at the time. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable decision. Once of these men to sit in a variety of very similar positions. <laughs> what point in your day do you go, why are we doing this? <laughs> Obviously, wonderful charity, etc. Oh, it's great to do it, but it must have been, I think because I've done quite a lot of 24-hour type stuff, I often get invited to like these things where people dance for 24 hours or jog on the spot. Sophie Ellis Baxter or... Yeah, exactly. Ellis Baxter, someone I've sort of run up against half a dozen times without her probably having the slightest recollection of it. <laughs> I might one day write a memoir, which is simply just a list of famous people that I've briefly met and <laughs> invite them all to kind of corroborate or refute. <laughs> Mark Watson meets 100 people. See if they remember him. <laughs> Will even one of the 100 remember it? I would 100% read that, just so you know, Mark. I'm not much of a player either, but I did play quite well on that day. And I... Probably was one of the very few highlights of my football career, but I, it can't have been one of Shearer's, to be fair. He'd already won numerous honours by that stage. Yeah, I was going to say, basically, every one of these things I've been to where someone is dancing or moving or doing anything for 24 hours, there's a real kind of... They've zoned out by the time I get there. I'm generally not a sort of blue ribbons guest. I'm normally invited into like hour 17. And <laughs> you're conscious you could be absolutely any human at all, basically. Talking <laughs> of famous people you've met, John Humphreys, you did the World Cup as your celebrity mastermind topic. Yeah. Was that what got you into football as a youth? Yeah, it was. The pressure was slightly off, more at least it, he unintentionally took the pressure off me, Humphreys, by saying, before we went on air saying, I don't know anything about football. And somehow it made me feel like if I'd fucked it, he himself wouldn't be judging me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know the answer. He wouldn't be thinking it's Brian Robson, you piece of shit. Whereas <laughs> you know, that terror of being shamed by Paxman, that dogs, University yeah. challenge contestants, yeah, I didn't yeah. have to worry about that. I knew that Humphreys couldn't have cared less what was on his cards. Yeah, as a kid, I was... Um, was it 86 or 90? My first World Cup was 86, but I was six. So I was sort of just about allowed. In fact, one of my first football memories is I wasn't allowed to stay up for the fateful Argentina game with the Maradona handball. But oh, yeah. I also couldn't sleep knowing it was on. And I remember just trudging down the stairs like you do when you're a kid and you're meant to be asleep. And in the living room, my dad, grim-faced, 
And my mum said, 2-0, Maradona cheated. And that was it, back up to bed. She didn't oh. the legendary wonder goal, which was his other contribution yeah. to the game. But I was allowed to stay up for the 86 final. So that was my first World Cup final. And um, I think six is maybe a good age to be born into a tournament year. Like, as in... Oh, yeah, that's an interesting one. When you should be having kids so that your child hits... Because I was seven for World Cup 90. I think that's... That's pretty good as well, I think. Uh, yeah, by Italian 90, I was 10. And that became... Well, I was going to say it became a seminal World Cup. Actually, Tim Key is quite a bit older than me, and he also regards... I think everyone that lived through Italian 90 has very specific formative memories of it. But yeah, I, I have sort of bits and pieces memories of Mexico 86. But beyond the actual watching of it, my dad just had loads of old football yearbooks, like Rothman's yearbooks and books about the World Cup and stuff like that. So I used to just compulsively read books of World Cup facts. Yeah. Like specifically, he had a book about Argentina, the 1978 World Cup, which is obviously before I was born. And I used to sometimes just take that as my comfort book, like if I was going to my grandma's or something like that. So oh. accounts of that night where Scotland had to beat Holland by enough goals to go through Archie Gemmell's, all that stuff. Yeah. I know way more about the 78 World Cup than I yeah. probably should do, but most of it was banked by the time I was like nine years old. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I had with the Italian 90 with the Orbis sticker album. If you're interested in something as a kid, you just read and read and read it again and again and again. Yeah, I think it also helped that I was aware that Bristol City had been really good just before I was born. So it was fascinating looking at yearbooks from the late 70s and seeing us as a oh, top right, level yeah. club, looking at the attendances, all the... I'd forgotten this, but I used to play a game on like longish journeys where the Rothmans would print all of the FA Cup scores round by round you'd pick a team in the first round and then see their score and then skip to the team that beat them. Something which people do in real life, like going oh, yeah, to people do in real life, don't But they, I just yeah. did it virtually with tournaments that had happened before I was born. I remember oh. the first time we went to America, when I was like nine, 10, we went to New York, never done anything like that before. And I spent the whole seven hours of the flight just picking my way through FA Cups from about 1920 to the present day. This wow. is exactly the kind of way you should be spending your childhood. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So when it came to Celebrity Mastermind, how did you do? Well, I've actually done it twice. And the second time I won with a different specialist subject, which was the Canterbury Tales. It's changed the scene altogether. Humphrey's <laughs> all over that like a rash. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> Humphrey's saying, I don't even need to read the cards. Yeah, that's right. Humphrey set the questions himself from memory. Yeah. <laughs> and so that one was my sort of um, a golden moment. But the first time I did it, I did all right, basically. I think I got 18 out of 20 on the World Cup, but the ones that you don't get are what haunt you. And yeah. so I finished second, but I was out pointed by Lucy Porter, who's a terrible person to be on Mastermind with because she's a... You don't want to get another comic. You don't no, want to get another comic. Oh, I think we were all comics, maybe. Yeah, that's right. Stephen Kamos was on, but he'd done absolutely no prep, even on his specialist subject, <laughs> which was the band Five Star. So you might think not a huge body of work. I can give you one answer, which is Sarah Green on Going Live. That would be my first I think answer. that probably was one of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think basically, if you go on... Mastermind or any of these things as a comedian, you can either completely dick about or take it completely seriously. And me and Lucy had both gone completely serious. Yeah. So she pipped me on that one. But then the two I got wrong were back to back as well, because as soon as you said pass once, you start to sweat oh. and you're pulsing. And then, so I barely even <laughs> oh, heard God. the next question. I just. Could you remember what the questions were? Yeah, they were very gettable. It was um, who did Beckham kick in the 98 oh. get sent off? Oh, no. Couldn't think of Simeone. And then it was. Which African team debuted in 94 and reached the knockout? It was Nigeria. And that was 
again, very doable, but I was still thinking, Simeone, you fucking moron. So I didn't even hear him <laughs> about Nigeria. Heartbreak, heartbreak. That's how it unravels for people on things like Mastermind. The second time I did it, there was someone from the Antiques Roadshow and she got the first general knowledge one wrong. And it was a real, it was like after Adam, who was the next person God made or something. And she just couldn't think of Eve, your worst nightmare. <laughs> And then we just saw her go into a tailspin of like six or oh. seven. And the questions were like, do you drink tea out of a cup or a traffic cone? But she was just going, pass, pass, pass. But you, you, you don't like to see it. But of course, at the same time, if it's in that format, you really do like to see it a bit. Yeah, yeah. I tell you what, you know how they say it's more tense being a manager than a player? Yeah. If you're going for the title in Celebrity Mastermind, it's more tense watching the people that are close to you Absolutely. answer than it is just begging for them to get one wrong. In that one that I won, I posted a good but gettable score and I'm watching um, Frank Cottrell Boyce, it was, the writer, just oh, yeah. thinking he needs to slip up two or three times. Your heart's in your throat as they hesitate over, like, what type of owl does it or whatever it is, yeah. <laughs> it's a weird type of voyeurism isn't it because there's a moment where yeah. it is a bit like hoping for another team to lose their game in hand or something like it's out yeah, of control yeah. and the moment came where you where he'd got two passes and i thought it's in the bag but you can't react facially you, you certainly can't <laughs> leap up or do anything <laughs> i'd say the sporting equivalent of the person that gets one wrong in mastermind then keeps going is john van der velde when he was trying to do six on the final round and he got one shot wrong and then just chased it down. Ended up in the water with his trousers rolled around his... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a Netflix documentary. I think there's a series of them called like Losers Losers. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. And I can't bear to watch the Jean van der Velde one. I find it too emotive. I find it too too sad that he did that yeah in fact i think i'd struggle with anything like that i wouldn't be able to watch a documentary about jimmy white's run of final defeat or anything like that i don't think it's funny isn't it a lot of the most acclaimed documentaries are about those kind of serial unlucky people or in fact like on the plane back from australia a guy next to me was watching a documentary about boris becker and he had the subtitles on so i was able to kind of watch quite a bit of it over his shoulder (laughs) had that weird situation where a couple of times he paused it to eat and i was like oh come on mate would have been perfectly within my rights to put it on my own TV, but I didn't want to do that. <laughs> I, keep watching it. I watched Becker overhaul a two-set deficit against Agassi at Wimbledon. And the match I remember watching at the time, supporting Agassi, and I felt sick all over again watching Becker, yeah. seeing Agassi's face crumple at all of this business. Even though I knew Agassi would go on to beat him at the US Open a month later. It's just something about, like, like some people love the poignancy of those moments, but if they're too poignant, it's yeah. it's just too much. Your heart just like someone like Van der Velde. It wasn't like he went on to win loads. No, of- no, no. You don't want to be defined by that. I don't think. And as much at the end of that documentary is him spinning out a story. Well, I'm a golf instructor now. And you're just like, that's not a happy ending. I know they're reaching for one. I suppose there's an argument that no one would remember him at all, but for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is my view on Harry Kane. Is that. I think he's got to the point now where it's better to be the best player who never won anything than the guy that won a couple of Bundesligas at the end of his career. I think, if anything, he should move to a smaller club than Tottenham <laughs> to secure that he's never going to win He should move anything. to a club where he's even safer from trophies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> That'd be great. And if he did an interview where he said, I'm just at the stage of my career where I, I want to make sure I don't win anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reason I'm joining them is I don't want to win any trophy. Accidentally getting to the FA Cup final with West Ham and trying to get himself injured before. <laughs> Speaking of not wanting anything, we should probably talk about Bristol City. Oh, can I just ask one quick question on that? Why City and not Rovers? Well, it's pretty much as simple as when I was growing up, Rovers played in Bath because they 
been kicked out of their ground. So they ground share with Bath, which was, um, my dad would take us to rugby. I was a rugby fan first, partly because he loved rugby, but also because it was the late 80s and my mum sort of had an embargo on us going to football, probably rightly with the way football yeah. was at the time. So there was very little prospect of going to Bath. So it was just about the fact that City were sort of on the doorstep. But then, ironically, the first time I ever went was a derby, oh, wow. which we lost 1-0. So in terms of introductions, you could argue I picked yeah. the wrong horse. But it's funny, I remember I was so excited to be there, so thrilled that I didn't even really mind losing. I remember looking across like the deflation, the fury, all of it, and the Rovers fans celebrating at the other end and the gloom at the final was all of it and just thinking, yeah, this is for me. I, I wouldn't mind more of this. <laughs> <laughs> Do you hate the gas heads? Well, part of it is, it's not exactly secret shame as a City fan, is I sort of don't, I can't summon much hatred for them because I sometimes feel something approaching hatred for Cardiff City, actually, because I've been to matches where there's been trouble with Cardiff fans and it's yeah. been ugly and unpleasant. But it's funny, isn't it? Part of the thing is I've got, it's not that I'm not sort of, passionate about the game I'm easily wound up by petty rivalries and the way all football fans are but nonetheless I've got an uncle that's a Rovers fan my parents neighbours was when you actually put a face to these kindly people it is sort of quite difficult to actually hate them well I mean having said that like Rovers went up the year before last with this implausible 7-0 win on the last day of the season briefly became national just and I was hating that I wish ill on them from a footballing point of view, and it's handy that Joe Barton's the manager now because that yes, is that easy helps. to hang your contempt on. But I'm friendly with enough Rovers fans. I remember I did work experience at a Bristol listings magazine, the sort of equivalent of Time Out. The editor was a huge gas head, huge Rovers fan. I mentioned that I'd been to see City at the weekend and he said something like, oh, that's how you spend your Saturday afternoons, is it? At the home of Satanism. He wasn't really joking, I don't think. <laughs> and that was my first glimpse of like genuine yeah. hatred. And it's quite an intense derby, isn't it? Oh, it really is. But we haven't had one for a long time now. I think that's perhaps the other thing. It becomes more difficult to sustain it as anything other than a pantomime rivalry. We're not actually yeah. playing in the same way that Plymouth and Torquay must be sort of a quite dormant rivalry. Yeah, we were never huge rivals with Torquay because we were never in the division that much. Do they have different... Exeter would be considered more middle class than Plymouth, but that's because of the cities in themselves. But what would be the difference between a Rovers and a City fan? The way Rovers fans will couch it is we are the sort of the bad guys. We've historically always had bigger gates. So Rovers thing is we're the family club, we're the wholesome, we're the true right. face of Bristol, we're the good guys, basically. And they've been able to do that because we have got a contingent of absolute arsehole fans like anyone. And the bigger the club, the more chance there is. And there was a notorious derby in the 90s that I was at where they equalised in the last minute. And to be fair, quite a large number of our fans invaded the pitch to try and beat the shit out of Rovers fans. It was frightening to be at. I think about two Rovers fans got on the pitch to celebrate. And in response, half the crowd invaded the pitch. It was horrible. I remember going home thinking, I was about 17 and my brother was younger. It was... Only real, like, frightening football violence that I've... And it was really just a series of scuffles and stuff. But, yeah, after that, for a long time, Rovers claimed the high ground. But then they got relegated from the league into the conference, as people might say, about three or four years ago. No, it must be longer than that now. One of their fans punched a police horse, all this business. Oh, my word. But still, I don't think there's much of an economic or class divide. I think it's more like we're the sort of big, arrogant club that former giants fallen on hard times... Rovers have never been in the top flight, so 
Yeah. And they've also didn't own the ground for years, of course, they're in Bath and stuff like that. There is still songs about Bristol Rovers got no home, even though they've been in their current stadium for it's probably about 20 years now. <laughs> <laughs> Love so yeah, I'd say that a lot of the when I was growing up, for a long time, we were in the same division and yeah, derbies would be intense. You sort of wouldn't look forward to it or enjoy it while it was happening, is my recollection. That's exactly how I feel about a derby. There's literally no pleasure in a derby. There were a couple that when I was at university and I'd have to listen on Five Live or something and that was even worse, listening to it, just, just horrible, just pacing up and down and thinking, the fact that no one else at the uni cared didn't really... Um... <laughs> didn't change it at all. But I certainly remember at school, that Monday morning bragging rights thing was a thing. There were teachers that were Rovers fans. It was horrible. And the, there is a breed of fan that it's their favourite bit. That all they really care about is the two. When we were in the same division, you'd hear people say, doesn't matter what happens this season as long as we beat the or as long as we finish above them. Or And that was a level of hatred I could never get. No. I always felt like it made us seem quite small time, basically. Just like, uh, yeah. we're shit, but we were 17th and Rovers were 19th. I was like, Can yeah. we not aspire to more than this? Even sometimes like... Even now, when there's, and I'm, a, I suppose, a bit of an old man about it, but when there's anti-Rovers singing and stuff, which there always will be, I sometimes do think, does this help the players? Do they even know what these songs mean? Like, Imagine shouting that out. Yeah, guys, yeah. guys, does this help the players? Which is unconstructive. <laughs> Bristol Rovers are currently losing to Rochdale. <laughs> now, I've been to Arsenal a few times with the boy and the Arsenal Spurs rivalry, obviously, is pretty ugly and hate-filled. But yeah, people who support huge clubs imagine that lower league derbies are somehow less intense because they just think everything yeah. is less important. In actual fact, I'd say derbies at our level are a bigger deal because it sort of is all you got sometimes. Yeah, I agree. I think like if you're a Man City fan, you can afford to lose to Man United and you'll still have a pretty pleasant time. But if you lose Rovers, you're thinking about it for yeah. so long. Yeah. And especially these days with how grim football Twitter is, how full of bands, yeah. all of it. I remember when, did you lose in the playoff final to Wimbledon, was it? Yeah, or, did, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know why I was on Plymouth. Twitter. Someone alerted me to some funny tweet. But yeah, the whole the timeline was just Exeter fans talking about it. No Plymouth fans. Yeah. So yeah, if anything, we live in an even more poisonous era of football rivalry now. If we were to meet Rovers anytime soon, given that and given how long it's been, I think the atmosphere would be fantastic, but also horrendous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! At the UPS Store, we want to make this summer the summer of shipping. Summer Shipalooza, so you can start crossing items off your must-ship list, like the vintage film camera your college kid needs for class, or the vase you told your mom you would send her ages ago. And with our pack-and-ship guarantee, your items arrive safe or we reimburse you. So stop by your local store today for everything you need to be unstoppable. Visit the upsstore.com slash guarantee for full details. Available at participating locations. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Let's go back to the 80s. Yeah, that's, that's the point of the podcast, isn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> well, I didn't realise how bad it was. Because I, when I started following football, Bristol City were quite good, comparatively. Your 80s was horrific, wasn't it? 
you almost went out of business. Actually, the 80s was one of the most horrific periods ever undergone by a football club. Yeah. I was born, and it's hard not to take this personally. We were in the top flight, 77, oh. 78. Dropped out, and then we got caught in a situation where we were still paying top flight wages. And the sort of pre-parachute payments dilemma, I suppose. Although, like most fans of the club my size, I believe that parachute payments are basically evil and clubs should still be sorting their shit out. But the way we sorted our shit out was just kept on paying these wages, got relegated again. We've now got a third tier squad on top tier contracts. Basically got more and more shit and more and more bankrupt. (laughs) And um, eventually in the early 80s, eight players were persuaded to cancel, rip up their contracts, the Ashton Gate 8, and that saved the club. Ashton Gate 8. Yeah, there's a wall commemorating them in oh, wow. In the stands, in the, the main stands these days, there's or one of the main stands, there's various walls commemorating famous moments. There's one for when we beat Man United, which is only a few years ago. Then there's a win at Anfield in the 90s. But then one whole wall, and it doesn't tell you great things about our club, is just the time that eight players saved us from bankruptcy by <laughs> taking voluntary redundancy. <laughs> but the, were those players, were they top division players? They were on great contracts, but not necessarily great footballers then. I think a couple of them had been been there all along and then a couple of them were younger players. Yeah, I don't know how we became, like, I don't know how the quality drops off, although we've seen it in modern times. Once you've dropped out of the top league, sometimes teams just do keep sliding. I remember Southampton doing it and Norwich. The fact there was that time Norwich went down to League One and then they lost 7-1 on the first day of the season. I think It's we, the mastermind effect. It's the Van der Velde mastermind Effect. Yeah, you start thinking, oh shit, we've been relegated. It would be awful. It'd be awful if we just got worse and worse. Yeah. <laughs> so we went, <laughs> went from top division to bottom division. And by by the mid 80s, we were called Bristol City FC 1982 and had basically done a some sort of undoubtedly semi legal scam where we just slightly changed the badge and the name and oh, wrote off no. our debts and became a new entity. No way. Yeah. So the, the club is have all these like centenary celebrations and you know, like 70th anniversary of this and that. But in, in a, from a Strictly technical point of view, the club has only been itself as this business since the early 80s. You're like an MK Dons. Yeah. But I think, so then when I was first a fan or conscious of it, like 86, 87, we were, we got back up to the third tier, but this club was still licking its wounds from that period. And in fact, one of the reasons where you see people complaining on Twitter, you see a younger generation of fans going, why was such a mid-table in the championship? I, I'm always tempted you don't want to be this guy that's like well drawing the war but I grew up so much third tier football some of the divisions just escaped that I considered being in the championship at all a blessing really I thought that division three as it was then was just your default thing what would be Bristol City's natural level do you think I thought that just was our natural level on grandstand you'd get used to waiting for that yeah division three Bristol City won but then when I started to discover that we had been a big club we still had a big stadium as I started putting the pieces together I thought and it's part of the reason that we have a permanently disaffected fan base. It's that most of us have lived through exclusively second and third level football. Yeah. Or even if you don't remember it personally, the club has this endless hangover from when we were a top yeah. flight club. So you never quite lose that sense of... And also, in some ways, like I said to you over text, you can make a case that our natural level could be top flight because if clubs like Brentford or Brighton can be become like mainstream yeah. top flight. If you live long enough, you see almost every fucking club. Well, Apart from Hull, City thus far. Burnley, yeah. <laughs> we lost the playoff final to Hull. It does feel like... It feels like Bristol City and Plymouth are the two, doesn't it? It feels like we're in a rom-com where you're the last one to everyone else is married. 
Yeah. And there are always theories like oh, having two clubs in the city dilutes the fan base and it's also a big rugby city and all these things are true but there's still if you're getting 20 plus thousand a week you could very sustain um, Bournemouth even with the money that has come in a historically far smaller club basically like I sometimes think about those old Rothman's yearbooks and think that kid in the 80s if I'd been shown the modern top flight I'd be like what the fuck? And especially past yeah. 10 or so years of it Hull Wigan clubs you remember being at death yeah. door it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. I remember when we our one crack at the top flight was like playoff final defeat to Hull oh. in 2008 Windass scored a famous goal basically Windass's last act almost as a human the last time he could walk more or less was to <laughs> volley Hull into the Premier League the most famous goal ever scored for Hull and probably the most notorious goal conceded by us if you look at what was at stake and We'd had such a good season and it felt like we'd punched above our weight. We'd only just been promoted from League One. So there was quite a lot of, we were quite philosophical about it, walking away. You're like, well, it's incredible to have even got this close. We've had a hell of a season. But then as it sunk in, you're like, Hull though, what the fuck? <laughs> and then when the season started and Hull are on match of the day, I remember they won at Arsenal. Then you start thinking, you see Hull fans in their way. Again, a club that you, a club that's had money put into it since, but... You never quite get over a club that once they're pegged in your mind as like Huller in the bottom division, Wigan are bolts and a shit. I remember when Wolves were like, you never quite get over the fact they're way better than you. I remember Brighton being 90 minutes away from dropping out of the yeah. football league. All of this. And yet all these clubs eventually have a redemption arc where they're about 10th in the Premier League in the semi except us and you. Yeah. <laughs> On Wolves, I've got a vague memory of one of Bristol City's. Do you know what I'm going to say? You might be about to refer to the time that our mascot got in a fight with theirs. Yeah. Was that so that's a classic 90s football moment, right? Isn't it? Was that in the 90s? Again, it's other than this one win at Anfield, it's probably our biggest contribution to football in the 90s. <laughs> we beat Liverpool in the cup and soon S got sacked. So that was a kind of seminal moment. But other than that, it was a dark day. Our mascot got into a fight with Wolves's mascot and it was on the news and stuff like that. I wasn't there. I was at uni, but my brother was. It was still considerably before smartphones. So you, if you'd been yeah. out on a Saturday afternoon, you were still like looking at the results in the window of a TV shop. Very hard yeah. to describe to people now. So I came back, called my brother on the landline to find out. We were very poor that year. We were. He was a season ticket holder and he was really suffering. We went down that year. And I can still remember him saying, it's bad news, mate. We lost 6-1 and our mascot got in a brawl. <laughs> And sure enough, it was on. It was on Sky News. Yeah, you, you'll see it now. I, I did a TV show in Australia once and got asked about it. it is um oh, wow. And did the people within the costumes? Did that guy get sacked? I mean, I'm not not trying to start a witch hunt, but like, was there things that came of it? Yeah, I can't remember exactly how it played out, but it was like a fun penalty shootout between the mascots, and one of them tripped the other one over, and then they just went at each other. If I recall. <laughs> Also, I can't quite remember. I think it wasn't even our regular mascot. It was someone that the sponsors had brought in or something. It was a oh. an enforced sponsor-themed mascot, but he certainly was sacked. Yeah. It doesn't help we got thrashed at home on the same day. It yeah. doesn't, it's not the sort of day that puts your club on the map for the right reasons. No one knows who he was. Does Banksy support Bristol City or Bristol Rovers? Does anyone know? Well, of course, famously, Banksy's a bit secretive about quite a lot of aspects of that. Uh, <laughs> Of his life, he's often played no more jockeys figure because you can't prove anything about him. But yeah. the guy from Massive Attack and Tony Robinson are our known fans. But that's good. I mean, Banksy's certainly his art doesn't give away any leanings, <laughs> sort of either way. Well, not the mural of Joe Jordan that he did. <laughs> <laughs> he's never drawn Wayne Allison that we know of. 
could. I mean, it would be a real slap in the face if he turned out to be a, a gasser because it would add strength to the idea that they're the real Brits and all yeah, this yeah. business. But no, as with many things, Banksy keeps his cards close to his chest. Although I used to talk about this on stage. My mum knows who Banksy is because she vaguely knows Banksy's mum. I used to have a story in my show about me and my siblings talking about this sudden celebrity of this mystery Bristolian artist and like how interesting it was that he kept the anonymity as part of the art. It was part of the fabric of all this. And my mum looked up and went, oh, Mrs. Boy. <laughs> she made several claims about where Banksy lived and where he'd grown up that were all verified. So my mum probably would know oh, if it wow. been known to... I've certainly never looked across at Ashton Gate and seen someone sort of sketching it. Drawing a graffiti of Brian Tinian holding a smartphone. So not <laughs> concentrating on the ball. Yeah, I don't know if Banksy's the sort of bloke to mutter. That gives me an idea. And then whip the sketch had out. <laughs> Speaking of things that Bristol are famous for, I'd say the mascot fight won, beating Liverpool. But the other thing for me was Bristol City came into my life when I realised that Andy Cole had played for you after he was released from Arsenal. And of course, he went on to great things. But how good was he at Bristol City? Was he amazing? Oh, really good. Like you immediately knew he was too good to be with us. It was that, uh, we've all experienced it. Yeah. That's sort of bittersweet feeling when you look at... We had Tammy Abraham on loan a couple of years ago and almost as soon as you saw him play, you were like, well, it was one of those things with a view to a permanent signing. And after half an hour, you were like, this guy's not permanently signing for us. <laughs> the way he controls the ball suggests he's not putting himself in the shot window for us here. <laughs> I remember Cole came with quite a bit of hype because it's like, oh, we've signed a guy from Arsenal. And even though no one had heard of him, still that itself was like... It was a thing. But again, like most clubs our size, every now and again, you get someone from Man United or Rangers or something and there'd be a free song and then he'd be total shit. Yeah. Like the reason that you were able to get him was he was 36 and his knees were gone. He also was... But with Cole was the real deal, a rare example of getting a guy that probably should have been playing for Arsenal already. He, he was like a goal every two games, but I can still... I only saw him play live a handful of times. We had a guy called Jackie Jakanowski that we got from Celtic who also was still somehow really good. And for a moment in history, there was this incredible axis of these two players that Jack Notsky was on the way down, but was still good. Cole was really on the way up. Notoriously, we didn't put a sell-on clause on him either. Oh, we sold him to Newcastle. Did you sell him because you had to sell him because he wanted to go? Because he's moving from within the same division there, is he? Or were you in League One? Wasn't no, I think Newcastle were already... Newcastle were in there about to be really good. Right, era but yeah within a year or something he'd again signed for Man United for what at the time was the equivalent of 150 billion pounds or something and then again we didn't have Twitter or anything but it just started to do the rounds as a bit of terrorist gossip that we weren't going to see a penny out of it and the, the board's <laughs> reputation took a long time to recover from that but then not everyone knows this but for a long time in the 90s we were owned by the keyboard player from Bros what yeah I was like can I double check this with you because I remember that from the 90s because obviously it was big in the West Country that news yeah, Scott Davison, his name was. He'd done various things to make his money, but one of them was he had been in Bross. So there was a local paper headline that was like, Bross star in City Swoop. And you, as a kid, you're thinking, well, he must be a multi-billionaire for a start. Yeah. That we're about to have our Blackburn Rovers moment. And then it turned out he wasn't the main guy in Bross. And also people in Bross didn't have that much money. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole documentary about that, in fact. Yeah. They did two nights at Wembley, didn't they? <laughs> it's fair to say some of our stewardship in the 90s was... Well, I was going to say not up to modern standards, although actually we're living through an era of the most bonkers football club that we've ever seen. Was he a friend of Matt and Luke Goss or was he just a session player? I think looking back, he was more of a session player, but he certainly had, he'd been in Dross enough to get people thinking 
any minute now, this guy's going to flash huge amounts of cash. It was as if, I think in our heads, we'd been taken over by like Brian Adams or, or something. But I think that Cole, it wasn't unamicable, even though he hadn't been with us for long. I think it was one of those moments where collectively everyone is like, you'd better play for someone better, really. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> it was still really weird to see him become a household name like that within months. And yeah, as you say, Chris, most people have no idea he ever was with us. Sometimes I, I'll name him in a best ever City eleven, and people are surprised. We've got a few players now in the Premier League that are alumni, but we haven't have many players who went on to things as big as that in my time. One of the things I, maybe you could correct me on this, is that you had a manager in the 90s called Jimmy Lumsden, who, from what I could tell, came directly from a job at a boarding school. <laughs> I didn't know that, but I, it might well be true. I'm pretty sure he was Joe Jordan's assistant. And then right. in those days, you'd often just promote the assistant rather yeah, than yeah. slinging the entire team out. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if he was... I mean, again, it's funny because... Pre-Google, again, like nowadays, if a player or a manager is even linked with your club, immediately the Twitter mob have done all the work, yeah. everything about it. But yeah, in those days, a bloke would show up and the local paper would say, this is your manager now. He was at Oxford for a bit. You just have to accept that. So yeah, like <laughs> we had a manager, in the, a disastrous manager that year of the Wolves fight, mascot gate. We had a manager called Benny Lennartson from Sweden, who basically we'd been promoted. We were struggling. The club panicked, brought this guy in. And there was all this business about he's won everything in Sweden. He's a legend there. He's immediately was clear. He was totally out of his depth. His thing was he wore a woolly hat and he had this gimmick where he's a big character. He would fling the hat into the crowd when we scored. But <laughs> what? would they throw it back or would he then have to bring out another hat? I can't remember how we knew. It was maybe in the programme or something. It'd be like, and watch out for Benny's. And then games went by without a goal and people would be like, where's that fucking hat? We're never going to see that. <laughs> And again, looking back, I'm sure he did have this CV from the Swedish League, but it is funny to think that because it was 1998, he could equally have just been a guy from Ikea and no one yeah. really have known. I certainly think there's the famous one with that guy that Sunes signed and he wasn't even a yeah. footballer. There must have been people in fairly senior management roles who had done almost nothing that they claimed on their CV. Yeah. I seem to remember Lumsden had an unspectacular reign and he was all right. He was one of several managers who didn't have a lot to work with. He managed a lot of teams in Sweden, Benny Lennartson looking at it. But his trophies were he won the Norwegian Cup in 1989, a second Hello. division in 1988, <laughs> and the Tipple whatever that is. So he won the Norwegian Premier League in 1991, and then he took the Bristol City job seven years later. I was going to say, that's the wrong end of the 90s for a start. Yeah, and all yeah. those Tipple Egans didn't weigh that heavily when it was like West Brom and Sunderland. Do you think he was riding the kind of Wenger wave? Do you know what I mean? I definitely think that in those days it was, and we're so used to it now, but to get a player or a manager from overseas was still kind of a big deal. If I suppose... Even now, you can't turn off that bit of your fandom that he's like, oh, he's from Turkey. He must be, this is exciting. We've got a French player. So I think <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's the first manager I can remember that we had who wasn't British. So I, yeah, I reckon he rode this wave of like, wow, we've looked overseas. We've cast yeah. our eyes. I also remember one of the first games he oversaw was a pre-season friendly with, I think it was Munchen Gladbach or some big German side came to town, big crowd. They walloped us probably 5-0, everyone was like, man, amazing to see a team like that. Like, 
That's yeah. what preseason friendlies are for. But then it turned out they were shit. They went down that season. <laughs> Six months later, with hindsight, it was like, oh, I see, we probably should have read more into that. They always say you can't learn anything from preseason games, but it turns out you sometimes can. <laughs> Let's talk about the Liverpool game, because that's definitely the highlight of the 90s. Yeah. Did you go to this? Well, this is a, a regret that I've only recently been able to exercise by going to the Man United game with, five years ago, where we beat them. Mm. My brother went because... To the first game, this is when at Anfield was a replay. We first played them at Ashton Gate, and it's proper like three o'clock on a Saturday. The sort of thing which again it seems nostalgic now. It was something like well, it's probably similar now. There's a token system. You had to have been to enough previous games to qualify. And I was 14. I don't know why I didn't qualify, but somehow I couldn't get a ticket. But my brother had a mate who could, so he and his mate went, and I couldn't go. One of the only times my brother and I didn't both go to. Oh. Came together, but I had to let him go. It was a, I'll only slow you down type situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That game's famous for the lights going out and have to be replayed in the week. Oh, really? Yeah, it's another example of looking at us thinking on a national stage, we look less than. So, was it on TV? It wasn't live on TV, but they went over to a grandstand and the pitch was dark with the Christmas <laughs> on Liverpool one across it. Again, it's the sort of thing which. If it happened now and Liverpool had to either stay for four nights or like come all the way back down, Klopp would be, you'd never hear the oh, end of the complaint. No. Whereas in those days, it was just like, all right, we'll see you next Wednesday then. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously the only way you could get a ticket for that was by means of your original one. So I also couldn't get into that game. Oh God. But then the replay was at Anfield on a, like a school night. Obviously we thought our chance of glory had gone. And Liverpool weren't great. They were, well, soon this was about to go, but it was still like Rush, McManaman, Barnes, not McManaman, but a lot of them were past their best. Though it was the fading numbers yeah. of the great Liverpool, but it still was Liverpool. Um, I remember it was on local BBC Radio Bristol, but also Alan Green was doing it on Five Live, just Radio Five at the time. And I remember this dilemma about: do we stick with our man, our, our oh. it or? In the end, it was Radio Five. The lure of yeah. hearing it live on, um, yeah, on the big station. I remember just pacing, pacing endlessly. While it was still nil nil, you still didn't really believe it. And then Tinian scored this goal in the second half, and then sort of 25 minutes of hanging on, which again, hanging on to a lead on a radio commentary is a very, oh. very different form of enjoyment. So what are you doing? You're just pacing forwards and back at that point. Yeah, I think just pacing my bedroom like a caged animal. Not listening with your brother. Oh, my brother was there as well, but I think he must be doing his own pacing. I don't think we communicated much. <laughs> Mind you, he was right down the corridor. Perhaps we were pacing up and down the corridor between our bedrooms. There was a lot of pacing. Remember my dad came up the stairs and my dad not a city fan of course Bournemouth fan so no real skin in the game and he immediately started doing that dad thing of like oh this is going to be a famous win and oh god no they're not going to equalize now so well, I think we set I just sent him away I remember both me and my brother being like this is not your you don't have the right to be here in fact for years every time we took my dad to Ashton Gate we'd lose or if we went to play Bournemouth he'd always win and but then I took him to the Man United game which we won so he actually shrugged off his bad boy reputation oh, yeah. belatedly in his 70s but yeah I remember weirdly the final moments were for anyone not a City fan curiously undramatic it was whoever the summariser was saying well it's going to look pretty bleak for Graham Sinness unless they can find an equaliser here in the final seconds and then Alan Green just going well they haven't and that was how we were told oh, it was. Oh. whereas I've since heard the Radio Bristol commentator's response to the final whistle. And it was quite a lot more effusive than that. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you picked the wrong team? <laughs> yeah, I think with hindsight, Alan Green's exasperated tone. It was just a novelty of, because of, of always listening to Green, the idea of him saying our players' names was, yeah. but yeah, retrospectively, I've heard both the goal and the final whistle. 
as archive commentary from Radio Bristol. And the guy, of course, completely lost his shit. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Alan Green, you imagine, was already packing up his bag as he was saying those yeah. final words. Do you know De-rigging what I mean? had begun. Yeah. yeah, what a shit game, Green was. <laughs> already in the car, on the car phone to his wife saying, yeah, I'll be a couple of hours. The Bristol club won. It wasn't much of a game. But meanwhile, I had a mate called Steve that along with my brother, I went to every game. With and again, of course, no text or anything. The landline went as soon as the final whistle, and I knew it was Steve. Oh. I think we were sort of best mates, and it's slightly surprising we didn't listen to it together. But I can only think we didn't think there was any chance of. I remember that obviously there's loads of city fans went, but it was a school night. You just couldn't. I didn't even bother asking my dad if I could go to Anfield, even if I could get a ticket. And but there were slightly older kids at school that were going. I remember even even with the magic of the cup, I remember thinking. Yeah, that would be great, but we're going to get thrashed and then you're going to come home and you have to go to school. But of course, I ended up being consumed with envy for those people. And then I remember, because it's famously, one of the things about sporting shit team is you'd always get teased in school or people that weren't even into football would be like, oh, this is shit. And I do remember coming into school that day thinking people would be shaking my hand all day. Like I'd be fielding congratulations. And actually, it's a real reminder of how little of a shit people give when things are going well for you. Like the contingent of City fans, we were all on a high, but everyone else just acted as if it hadn't happened because most of them didn't know for a start. There was very few kids deciding to listen to Alan Green if they weren't a Bristol City fan. Very few 12-year-old boys are thinking, I'm going to listen to the Radio 5 commentary of an FA Cup replay with my Definitely, head. and also just that rule of football that if we'd been beaten 8-0, everyone would have heard about yeah. it. What was the percentage of Bristol City fans? Because I'd say... At my school, it was 95% Premier League fans. Yeah, we had more fans than Rovers fans, but of course, the huge majority was Man United, Liverpool. I think a lot of Liverpool fans who'd got on board in the 80s and then Man U fans who were just starting to like football now. And I think yeah. when I try and describe my distaste for clubs like Manchester United to people, and it is basically jealousy, of course it is, yeah, as say, but it is difficult to explain what it was like at school for seven years digging in for your local team and having people not only claim glory for Man United stuff but also be seen as better fans somehow just because they're yeah. even at university I remember people celebrating United's treble the winning over Munich and just feeling absolutely sick because the biggest assholes at my uni all supported Man United yes because they come to football relatively late and preach Mark everyone I meet like everyone that supports a smaller club has more or less had this experience yeah. and it's these days, I still am quite kind of a fascist about supporting your local club, but especially in those days, it cost like three quid to get in at Ashton Gate. You could move down the road. If you had any interest in football, it was so easy in those days. To, now, championship football was expensive, so you can understand why people just thought, I'll watch it on Sky. But there wasn't much Sky then, and local football was so easy. And so I, I felt really high-minded about it. And even if I meet a Manchester United fan now that's, never set foot outside Salford that's been going for 60 years, man and boy, I still see one of these pricks at university. (laughs) (laughs) There's a couple more weird quirks from the 90s that Tony Pulis managed you for six games. Yeah, Pulis was monumentally unpopular. Was he? Yeah, he played for Rovers for a start. So the club misread the room. It was obviously before he became Stoke manager for about 50 years but he'd already got a reputation as like a bloke that will come in and sort you out a bit an Allardyce type figure my main memory of him is that we had at the time Adi Akinbayi who had come with a lot of hype he was one of these players that every club has who is brilliant against you and when you sign him you're over the moon but it's just not the same guy suddenly yeah. 
but he'd come in on a huge contract. We, he was on big wages and he'd played with Pulis before, so Pulis liked him. And I remember a contentious interview where Pulis said, Akinbay deserves to be on more money than the other players because he's better than all of them or something like that. Oh my God. So he immediately lost all of the dressing room apart from Akinbay there. <laughs> <laughs> and that was quite early on and it never really got better. I think these days there's maybe more emphasis now on good sound bites. Yeah. But even then, if you said unpopular things in the first two or three weeks, fans never really forgot it, I don't think. Yeah. Basically, Pulis never quite got out of the blocks. But also, we had a number of managers who you regard as quite relatively recognisable names like that, but your only memory is really grim football, to be honest. Most successful managers never went on to do much elsewhere. They just had that golden period with us. It's a strange period for Bristol City, looking back. The one other thing that I remember this happening... But this must have been incredible in Bristol, was in 1990. The title race was Bristol City versus Bristol Rovers. That's an awful situation, right? Yes, it was indeed. And I remember hoping that, in a way, that both clubs would be promoted because, like, the idea of how ugly it would get if not... And in the end, we both were promoted, but we also met Rovers on the penultimate game of the season. Oh, my word. Did you go to that? I didn't. I was too young to be allowed and... It was at Bath as well, which was a sort of a jinx ground for us. And it was basically a title decider and a derby rolled into one. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Only about 50 Bristol City fans were allowed for a start because the allocation was, the ground was so small. Although for years, actually, even now, if we play Rovers, to get in as an away fan, you basically have to do like a personality screening, like a week-long process. To, <laughs> but yeah, we got thrashed. We lost three. And I was again listening to it on Radio Bristol. So they went up as champions and we were still not up and it was a dreadful day at school that and then I think I'm right in saying the following night we were promoted by someone else losing Walsall or someone but the celebrations were quite muted because yeah of course that death or glory it's the certainly the only time we've ever been top two clubs it was Rovers under Jerry Francis and we had Joe Jordan two old school like 70s brawlers oh wow so Jerry Francis this was where he cut his kind of managerial reputation yes I think he went from there to QPR Rovers and QPR had this weird axis for a while Ian Holloway also managed both of them and I might be wrong but I think Francis might have been one of these guys that became Rovers manager again a bit later and then QPR manager you get these managers that only ever do two things on rotation I think just love blue and white yeah but he was a Spurs manager actually wasn't he Francis for a bit he did go on to um, bigger things Rovers then they also got to the final of what is now the Johnson's paint in that year they had a miraculous year but that's and I think the game was on, I think, the 2nd of May, that game, because the Rovers fanzine was called the 2nd of May in honour of that. Oh, wow. <laughs> that night. We didn't show up. Oh, yeah, we were not yeah. at the races. And it, for a long time, it was they dined out on the fact they'd been champions. and But then we went on to do better than them the next season, as often happens for some yeah. reason, with champions and other promoted teams. And then very quickly, you sort of forget about that. But yeah, it was amazing. Again, I was only 10, but there was a real atmosphere in the city and I can only imagine what the pubs and stuff were like yeah. but I was far away from being on the end of that Danny Wilson managed you of course and I was just thinking of Danny Wilson and in my head he's still a young dynamic manager but of course not so much anymore but were you a big fan of Danny Wilson? Yeah and I remember him as a player too I think Wilson was maybe the first manager we had where I thought hang on players are becoming managers Oh, yeah. yeah. now I have a 13 year old son and he'll say things like so was this guy a player? And you're like, yes, he was. Uh, <laughs> he still is a player. And then, of course, it just gets worse and worse as you get older. And people like, luckily, because of YouTube, my son at least understands who Lineker is, for example. But there's a generation of kids that just think he's an old guy off the TV. Yeah, Wilson <laughs> built 
a really good side who should have got promoted, put a 10-win streak together, missed out on the last day, went to the playoffs, and then one of those heartbreaking days where you'd lose to a team, Brighton, in fact, that had finished 15 points below you in the regular season. Oh, yeah, heartbreaking, heartbreaking. In fact, my worst day, worse than the whole defeat. My worst day as a fan was that playoff final because that year we should have gone up. The feeling that you oh. should have gone up automatically. And in fact, it hung over the players, I think. I think it was in the back of the players' minds that we shouldn't even be in the playoffs. And almost that defeat was so shattering that two or three of them left, like just couldn't even think about it anymore. Oh. And Wilson went that summer. And I think it was, I don't think he was sacked. I think he just looked in the mirror and thought, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't he sacked himself. He had built a very attractive side. He was also very good with the fans. I think Wilson was generally very popular, but unfortunately he's destined to be remembered for the best side never to make it. A bit like the thing that you're saying about the best oh, clapping honours. It's a sad end. It is. I always wished him well and if you'd see him crop up elsewhere. And he had a reasonable career, at, I think, in the end. But there's nothing quite like the playoffs for uh, stamping that nearly men thing on you. A season's work is integrating in front of your eyes like that. <laughs> and do you, in conclusion, feel like you made the right decision supporting Bristol City over... Liverpool or Bristol Rovers? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've seen uh, Torquay man, Charlie Baker, tweet about this a fair bit. With Torquay, he really has pulled the short straw, obviously. But he tweets <laughs> quite a lot. I follow other... Yeah, he tweets in a way that you go, the man doth protest too much. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm absolutely fine with being relegated, I must say. <laughs> the trouble is, there's sort of no way of saying it, which doesn't make you sound like one of these Manic Street Preachers fans used to get in the 90s who had that sort of purity and one-upmanship. Yeah. I do feel that the experience of supporting a club like this or like Plymouth is, well, purer is a big word, but you're getting something which yeah. supporters of Liverpool don't... Actually, maybe Liverpool aren't a good example because Liverpool are fans of their own breed. But certainly, if you're regularly winning trophies, then I, it must be nice, but I don't entirely envy it on some strange level, I think. I certainly feel that the occasional high spots, like your promotion or the couple that I've had, are sweeter because of how long you've waited that said i mean my son now he obviously has bristol city as a second team but he basically is already quite an intense gunner and perhaps that's what you really want like growing up as an arsenal fan now the disappointments and setbacks there's enough of those to make you into a pure football fan but you're also watching a really good team and basically doing really well i suppose what i'm saying is i've no regrets about it and i think that the best form of football fandom is like slight underachievement and disappointment. Yeah. I wouldn't have minded having that still in the Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> Someone like good. West Ham or something with a suit would be down to the ground, I reckon. I'm a West Ham fan. You're welcome anytime. There you go. You've had a bit of European football. You've knocked around the top four. You've had some great players. Now you're a bit yeah. of shit, but you're not in danger. I wouldn't mind that. Like. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah. We ask one final question of all our guests. We're going to give you the opportunity, if you want it, to go back to the 1st of January 1990 and relive the 90s if I offered you that opportunity would you take it I've heard the podcast before and I unfortunately questions like this always trouble me existentially because I, I, I start thinking about what else <laughs> of the 90s I would have to really does it unpick the fabric of my life and so on I think it's easy to be nostalgic about it and a lot of stuff was objectively worse the stadium was worse a lot of the football was awful we had a very poor team for a lot of it so maybe if I actually went back, I'd realise it, it was way less fun than it feels in the memory. But yeah, I think I would go for it because... Oh, wow. Well, partly I'm just afraid of death and mortality and ageing and stuff like that. So the extra yeah, there's part of it that goes, why not? Because I'm 30 yeah. years away from death. Fuck further. it, might, might as well. Yeah, chance to revisit certain situations from my teenage years and play them better, maybe. Like, obviously, being a teenager, having no 
kids or responsibilities, proper relationships, commitments, being able to be totally absorbed in just going through the turnstile, getting your hot chocolate or a hot dog or something and watching a dreadful game with Rotherham. There is a, there's a simple joy about that, which is a little bit difficult to recapture as you get older. So yeah, I reckon so. I'd watch a lot of terrible games all over again. And also I'd, I'd have to buy a program every time because I'm a serial program collector. So I'd have loads of duplicates, which is unnecessary. But yeah, it'd be worth it. And you'd be able to go to the Liverpool game. I definitely would. I'd do whatever was necessary this time. I'd lobby really hard. I'd promise to still go into school. I was a good kid as well. I would have done it. Yeah, I don't remember when you'd stay up. I don't remember it affecting you as a kid as much. Do you know what I mean? If there was a reason. Absolutely. Especially if it was a big football match, you'd wake up still awash with the adrenaline. You'd wake up after those like Italian 90 or Euro 96 games and you'd barely been to sleep really, but it didn't matter. Everyone else at school would be buzzing in the same way. Exactly. So yes, I was saying I would like to revisit a time when I had near unlimited energy and no real problems. (laughs) (laughs) Mark Watson, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Josh. Nice to talk to you and Chris. That was Mark Watson and that was Bristol City. And now um, we've we've trailed it, haven't we? So we've got to do the Hammer of the Year quiz. Um, it's absolutely astonishing. Shall I give you the lead in to... Um, shall I give you the, uh, the last few years before the 90s to lead you in? 86, 87, Billy Bonds. <laughs> yeah. Is he quite old at that point? Yeah, 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 yeah. He really... He played on to lose 40. He came second the year after to Stuart Robson. The year after that, Paul Ince, yeah. that's 88-89, with Julian Dixon second. Okay, so that takes us into the 90s for the Hammer of the Year. Michael, I think you should start. You just need to come up with a player. You don't need to also marry it to the year. I think that would be... Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a big ask. <laughs> I've got I've got three okay. names. I think they'll all be in there, but I couldn't tell you what. Yeah, one of them you, whom you've just said, so... Julian Dix must have won it at some point in that decade. Yeah. He was Hammer of the yeah. Year in... Do you want to take this up, Skull? Um, I think he'd be Hammer of the Year. I think he'd be... Mul- Has he not won it multiple he, times Four in the times he was Hammer of the Year. In the 89, 90, 91, yeah. 92, 95, 96, 96, 97. He was, our, he was our top scorer for two seasons in the 90s. Absolutely. At left back. Was he good? Oh, he's unbelievable. He was by far our best player. For a big chunk of the 90s. Why was he so good? I just remember him as being a bit of a kind of cartoon thug. I mean, just tough in the tackle. He would get up the pitch. He would score unbelievable goals. Captain as well. Like, very passionate. Do you think he's an underrated player in the kind of grand scheme of things? Oh, definitely. Definitely. A hundred percent. And there was always the rumour. I don't know if you've... We've talked about this, but he would have got called up for England, but they didn't like the fact he was a skinhead. Right, yeah. That was always the rumour. That's not true. Um... (laughs) Okay, Chris. So you All right. Um, I've got. I mean, Decanio's got to be the tail end of the nineties. He's got to be ninety nine. I'm. I'm not going to allow it because it's ninety nine. Because it's ninety nine two thousand. Yeah. Mm, okay. So you've lost a life there, Michael. I mean, Rio must have won it before he left. Surely he did. Ninety seven, so ninety eight. Much better than everyone. Ninety seven, ninety eight. He saw off uh, second place Steve Lomas. Oh, well, I don't think I would have got that. Um, well, so far, Scott, you're about to lose on the Hammer of the Year quiz. You're... <laughs> how many How many are left? How many years are left? Well, five years are left. Oh, I, I know. Okay, go on. S- Steve Potts. Steve Potts would have won it. Steve Pottsy Potts won it in uh, yeah. twice. 
1993 and 94-95. I, I wouldn't have got pots if you had a gun to my family's head. No, so that's seven, <laughs> that's seven of them gone. Um, well, my only other guest is uh, is Ludo, Big Ludo Jack McCloskey. Surely, he's correct, out of, correct. He's out of season where 1991, and the TV cameras were there a lot for that season. <laughs> <laughs> he be a player I've never heard of in my life, George Paris. Good to know you've never heard of George Paris. I definitely won't suggest him as a future guest idea then. <laughs> <laughs> Question one We normally start with sponsors But I've got to ask Who are you? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay to save it Skull so there's been you're, about to lose, that you're about to lose The hammer of the year quiz Just so, what, what year, so what years have we got left? 93, 94 And 98, 99 Trevor Morley Correct Oh wow yeah, I don't even know who that is <laughs> I met. It's funny. I met, met Trevor Morley, Morley the other no day shit. for the first. <laughs> You're not going to believe this, but I get so much more excited by meeting players from the '90s than I do about meeting current oh, players. Totally, totally. Like, I was so excited to meet him. Um, oh, it's too late for him, surely. Tony Cotty. No, it's <laughs> incorrect. So Skull, this is it. You lose if you get this wrong. John Hartson. Incorrect. <sighs> Michael Hartson wins. never won it in the 90s, Michael that's mad. Wins the, uh, Hartson never won it. That's mad to me. It's, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. The, win, the winner of the 98-99 was Shaka Hislop. Oh. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't have got that. Second yeah. place, Ian Pearce. What a, what a decade. Six of the nine taken up by Dixon Potts. <laughs> Two of the ten taken up by goalkeepers. Two of the ten. In fact, Trevor Morley is Potts a defender. Yeah. Trevor Morley is the only person in the whole of the 90s to win it who didn't play in the back five. <laughs> that tells its own story, that doesn't is it? An astonishing statistic. <laughs> oh my God, what a club. What a club. Nine of the ten were goalkeepers or defenders. Considering, if you look at like the PFA Player of the Year award it, or the World Player of the Year, it's so rarely a defender, so rarely a goalkeeper. I mean, so much evidence that we spent the nineties with our backs against the wall yeah. defending for our lives. <laughs> Wonderful. All right, that's it for this week. If you want even more quickly, Kevin, we've got hundreds of hours of extra episodes, all the Steve Bruce books, loads of watch-alongs, really good stuff. You can get access to that. Oh, an exclusive interview with Yapstan, plus loads of other exclusive interviews. If you want to get access to all that content, sign up for the fan club at anotherslice.com forward slash quickly Kevin. This week's goodbye is courtesy of Ben Painter, who says, ta-ta, George Ndar. Hit legs! Hit legs over the top!